welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Lewis County, Washington. During each episode, you will discover the sermons, exhortations, discussions, and interviews from our various weekly gatherings. Christ Covenant Church is a historically reformed and evangelical church that has been serving the greater Centralia Chehalis area since May of 2021. We meet for worship each Lord's Day to sing psalms and hymns, confess our historic faith, hear the word faithfully proclaimed, and celebrate together the Lord's Supper. Throughout the week, we go out into the world to build the kingdom of Christ right here in Lewis County. If this sounds like a vision for you, we would love to have you join us. Head on over to lewiscounty.church, that is lewiscounty.church, where you will find a calendar of events as well as current times and locations for worship. Please enjoy the following audio. Our meditation and preparation for worship this morning comes from Psalm 67, verses 1 through 2. God, be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us, Selah, that your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Pray with me. Father, we ask that you would ready us to come into your presence. Bless us and cause your face to shine upon us, that we might, as the universal church, declare your glory and your salvation unto all nations. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Please rise with me as we worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. The Lord is near to all who call upon Him, to all who call upon Him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who are in awe of Him. Our responsive reading comes from Psalm 93. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed. He has girded himself with strength. Surely the world is established so that it cannot be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their waves. The Lord Your testimonies are very sure. Holiness adorns your house, O Lord, forever. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We come into your presence this morning, and we behold your glory. You are girded with strength and majesty. You are mighty and worthy of our trust, our praise, our obedience, and our worship. You are higher than the floods louder than the noise of many waters, and more powerful than the mighty waves of the sea. You cannot and will not be moved. You have established our world and ordered our week, so that every seventh day we get to enter into your presence, into your house, in which holiness adorns every corner. We don't just get to enter this house, we get to belong in this house. We know that we do not belong here in this glorious place because of any righteousness found in us, because of any good deeds we have done or right theology we have thought. But we do belong here nonetheless because of the righteous and heroic work of Christ on the cross, whose blood covers our sins and makes us new creations, whiter than snow, and members of your house of holiness. Father, we ask that you would accept our worship this morning in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. And amen. Amen. Well, we have been worshiping together for exactly one year, and during these past 52 glorious Sundays, we have discovered something. We've discovered that intentionally liturgical covenant renewal worship is weighty, overflowing with glory. Each worship service is saturated with the Word of God, which deliberately directs our minds, our hearts, and our bodies to the reality that worship is central, that covenant children belong in the service, that the psalms are for singing, that the word proclaimed is sharper than any two-edged sword, that bread and wine unite, and that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, which means the church of Christ will never fail. 
Whether you are new to this style of robust and hearty worship, or you've experienced it from the beginning, I would like to exhort each of us here to cultivate and continue to cultivate a spirit of fearlessness in worship. This fearlessness is not a lack of fear and reverence for God. Rather, it is a fearlessness of the fear of man. And so in worship, we need to cultivate fearless singing, fearless participation, and fearless commitment. The psalmist declares in Psalm 98, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. So the sea, the rivers, the hills, all the earth and everyone who lives here is commanded to roar out their songs of joy before the Creator. When we just sang Psalm 148, I heard a lot of roaring. Let me ask you, did you roar your song before the Lord? If not, today is the day to start singing with fearlessness. If you don't know the song, learn them. No excuses. Singing isn't some random hobby that only those with the natural gift engage in. If you're no good at it, you can learn, and you must learn. Worship is warfare, and fearless worship means fearless singing. Fearless worship also means fearless participation. Um, all throughout our busy and active service, uh, for example, we all raise our hands when we sing the doxology. Why do we do this? It's not because individually we all happen to feel a unique spiritual call special to just us. No, we're worshiping together. The true king as his unified body, the church. So put aside your individual preferences and reservations and participate fearlessly without fear of what others might think. Kneel with us. Raise your hands with us. Confess your sins and your faith with us. Participate fully in the Lord's table each week. Fearless worship means fearless participation. And then finally, fearless worship means fearless commitment. Devote yourself to these people around you. Each soul here represents a various part in the body of Christ with whom you will spend eternity. So devote yourself now to getting good at loving and serving them. We've made it through our first year. The honeymoon is over, and that is a wonderful thing. It means during the next year and years to come, we can focus on maturing and growing as a body. Now is not the time to get comfortable. Devote yourself to the peace and prosperity of this church in the coming year. Be relentless in your hospitality toward your fellow saints. Pray without ceasing for one another. Build others up with encouragement. Join the men at Reformation Roundtable. Join the ladies during their monthly uh, fellowship. Feast with us. Learn the Psalms with us. Seek ways to serve this body in areas that both stretch your comfort and simultaneously assault your pride. Give generously of your time, your attention, your resources, your devotion. Commit to confessing your sin to God and to one another regularly and cheerfully, and commit to forgiving each other quickly. The bo this body of believers is here to love one another as Christ has loved us. Fearless worship means fearless commitment. Men, in particular, your family will follow your lead if you are willing to lead them by example in such fearless worship. Sing without fear, participate without hesitation, and commit fully to the mission of this church and watch your family grow and mature in ways you could never imagine. Of course, fearless worship does not come naturally. We must first confess both our sins of fear of man as well as our lack of fear of God, which is pride as well as the other ugly transgressions that have been seeking to dominate our life this week. So as you are able, will you kneel with me as we confess our sins together? Scripture says in Romans 3, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we confess that we are a fearful people who are constantly afraid. We fear what others think. We fear sickness. We fear job loss. We fear what the future might hold. This fear drives us to not believe your wonderful and powerful promises, but instead to look to ourselves for our own private salvation. 
We confess that our fear has led us toward all sorts of sins that have no business being named among your people. We pray that you would forgive us for our pride, our arrogance, our coveting eyes, our lying tongues, and our hearts that shed the innocent blood of our brother through our anger. We ask that you would forgive us of these sins and cause us to be righteous, fearless, and as bold as lions, fearing only you, the creator and sustainer of our lives and holder of our eternity. We now confess to you our private sins during this time of silence. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus, and amen. Amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. Scripture says in Micah 7, 18 and 19, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. People of God, you have humbled yourself in faith. Now hear the good news and believe your sins are forgiven through Christ. Let's sing the doxology in response to this glorious news. Good morning. The sermon text this morning is from John chapter 6. I'll be reading verses 16 through 21. These are the words of God. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea towards Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. And the sea rose because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. That's the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask his blessing upon it. Father, with your word open before us, open our hearts and minds to the full work of your spirit with this word. Place it deep into us, not only the story, but the truth it proclaims about you. And then let us live accordingly by that spirit. Bless now, bless now, dear Lord, the preaching of your word. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, greetings from Trinity Church, from the elders there. We are rejoicing, amazed, and grateful, as grateful as you all are for what God is doing down here. Um, A year. Yeah. Wow. And and more than that, in terms of how long we've known you and been apart and praying with you for all that's happening, but to see God doing his good thing, we do do regularly remember you and give thanks for you um, and are excited that, that we have this sister church down here. Um, with us in the work of bringing the gospel to the left coast, <laughs> where, where the gospel needs to reign again and, and bring forth the truth and goodness um, and the grace and the hope that this world needs. It seems like this coast needs more than ever before. So thank you for the faithful work that you're giving yourselves to. Um, you have, um, to the congregation, um, we really, from the elders at Trinity Church would say you have been blessed as a mission church, as a new church, to have faithful, excellent, qualified leaders in your elders and deacons. That doesn't happen in many of our churches as we're getting them started. Um, and you guys are just really blessed. And then, and then just the layers beyond that of faithful Folks, we are, I hear from Tyler regularly as he comes down and, and preaches and, and then spends time with you, just what a wonderful congregation already giving themselves to both the Lord and to one another uh, in, in great ways. And that's obvious in the fruit that's spilling over when all of a sudden you have a whole bunch of people interested in starting uh, a Christian school. And so we will pray for you um, as that gets going as well. We've been involved in planting and serving in uh, ACCS schools for 30 years a long time. <laughs> and so um, it's, it's a great, glorious, and hard work. And so we'll be praying for that to be um, real successful for you all as well. All right, to our text this morning. Um, we're in the gospel. I've been preaching through the gospel of John and, and went ahead and just chose this one passage to, uh, to bring to you this morning. Um, as we've been going through the gospel of John and in our church, I've pointed out regularly, you probably already know this, but um, if you've read through the Gospels several times, you notice as you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke that regularly a lot of the same stories, almost word for word oftentimes, are in there, are in those books. And then you get to John where oftentimes there's all kinds of discourses and stories 
that are only in the Gospel of John. That's why Matthew, Mark, and Luke are referred to as the synoptics. Synoptics just means they look the same. And then John is a later gospel written, um, and John has his particular purposes in, in writing that. And John uses literary devices that, um, so, so that you can read, I don't know if, you, if you've ever told someone to read, uh, they're interested in reading the Bible, and you might tell them, well, if you're going to get started, why don't you read the book of, what would you say? Maybe a lot of times people say the gospel of John, read the gospel of John, because there's a lot, quite a bit of discussion from Jesus that is very compassionate and um, speaks of his love for the people and draw, you know, come, uh, come to me all you who are, uh, are weary and, and I will give you rest. This kind of language from, from Jesus shows up all, all the time through that gospel. But oftentimes, also, as you read the gospel of John, Jesus says things and you kind of go, huh, what? What, what did he mean? And so it's, it, it should become obvious to you that the Gospel of John, like all of the Bible, is something that you can read and there's a, there's a first gleaning from that Gospel, but then there are layers that are wonderful as you study and consider and meditate over the Scriptures. This is why, as Bible-believing Christians, what does that mean? <laughs> well, it doesn't just mean that you believe that this is the Word of God. It means that you believe this is your food. This is your spiritual food. This is where you're going to find not just simple answers, but life, um, sustenance, grace that, that helps you see the world as God sees the world, see history and the coming future as God sees it, and then be able to act and interact accordingly. Um, it, it, it gives you foundation and it gives you legs to walk in. And it gives you hands to be able to use in, um, in, in the name of Christ in the world around you. That's what it means to be a Bible-believing Christian. It, it means that I believe that I meet Jesus. I meet God in his word here in this text. And, him, and he, by his spirit, transforms me, feeds me, nourishes me, changes me. And, and, and God uses word, because God is the word, <laughs> And, and, and God uses word in beautiful ways. So when I say that um, in the Gospel of John, we find literary devices doing far more than just telling the stories of miracles done by Jesus, I'm not just simply saying, well, he's, he's just really a good writer. John's a really good writer. There's something, something much more powerful going on. But he is a really good writer. I want to take this little teeny passage and just show you how much there actually is, is going on as, as John is writing this. So we're coming right into this section. I'm just, I'm just dropping you right into the middle of chapter 6. This is the fifth of seven signs that are in the Gospel of John. John begins from chapters 1 to chapter 11 with seven signs. Seven's an important number. Seven signs culminating in, in the sign of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And then there's just one more sign at the very end, of course, of the Gospel of John, and that is the resurrection of Christ, the eighth sign. Okay, and it's often referred to as the book of signs, the first 11 chapters of John. We've been, you've been dropped in, just another interesting point, this is one of two signs that are in the other Gospels, but the other five signs are very unique. They're unique signs that are given just in the Gospel of John. Why does he choose these particular signs? What, what is his point? Well, he actually tells us at the end of John, if you turn with me to the end of John, John chapter 20, You'll see this for just a moment. It helps set the uh, kind of the pattern for what you're to be looking for, why you're supposed to see these signs. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, he says, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So we know that Jesus did many signs. Um, Later he says, if if I had had, uh, recorded all of the signs that Jesus did, there would not be enough books in the world to to handle, to to hold all of the the signs that he did and tell you about all the ways that he affected the world around him. Um, but But he says, I chose these particular signs for a particular purpose. Jesus oftentimes acted, it says, out of compassion for those around him. But John is recording these signs to show us not what Jesus could do. I mean, if he really wanted to do that, then, then he, would have, he would have recorded all of those signs to show that. But he, he said, I, I, it wasn't to show you so much what Jesus could do, but rather to reveal who he is. 
rather to reveal who he is. So in the, in the chosen signs that John gives, he's looking to reveal to us who Jesus is in very particular ways. Matthew and Mark give us more detail of this event, but John is emphasizing particular aspects. So key to interpreting the Gospel of John is also the prologue, the first 18 verses of chapter 1. And oftentimes, um, the, uh, the first 18 verses of John kind of act like a table of contents, uh, contents or a thesis for a paper. Um, everything else is kind of developed from those 18 verses. Two of the verses you should keep in mind, they seem to hover over this particular text this morning. One is the very first, uh, the very first verse, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And along with that, keep in mind John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. These should hover over the text as the Spirit hovered over the waters at creation. Now, a little bit more of the context. Right before this, um, John records the feeding of the 5,000. And so now you need to imagine you're one of the disciples. You've been following Jesus, and there's this growing body of people. They say there's 5,000 men. It's 5,000 men. So that means there could be 10, 15,000 more uh, people that are around with, with the women and the children that would be there as well. So thousands have gathered, and all of a sudden they're like, it's getting late, Jesus. What are we going to do about feeding them? And, and there, there's this issue of what are we, we going to do about all this? And Jesus performs this unbelievable miracle with just a few couple loaves and a few fish, and, and everybody is fed. This is just imagine being that, like, here it comes. And then everybody's rising up to, to say, hey, let's, let's make him king. Let's, let's gather him together. And Jesus, then Jesus wanders off. He just departs from them. It's like, well, why do you do that? So they've, they've just witnessed this incredible miracle. And then Jesus leaves. And finally, he's, he doesn't show up. He doesn't come back. And it becomes evening. And they decide, well, let's go back to Capernaum. That would have been kind of, it was kind of the home base in Galilee for them, for the ministry. So let's get back in the boat. We'll go to, we'll go to Capernaum. Maybe we'll, we'll find Jesus there at some point. Well, so think about that for a moment. We, we, what, in this passage, J.C. Ryle writes it this way. He says, we see them alone in a dark night, tossed about by a great wind on stormy waters. And worst of all, Christ is not with them. It was a strange transition from witnessing a mighty miracle and helping it instrumentally amid an admiring crowd to solitude, darkness, wind, waves, storm, anxiety, and danger. The change was very great. But Christ knew it, and Christ appointed it, and it was working for their good. Have you ever been in a situation where it was, it was just amazing what God had done in your life, what you had seen him do? You had had, it was one of those spiritual highs. It was one of those, oh my goodness, God is so great, so kind, so present, so here. And then tomorrow comes, and it's not so much that way. (laughs) It's like he left, and all of a sudden storms and winds and waves. That's what the disciples are facing here. An amazing, an amazing, miraculous activity takes place, and then, then he's gone. And then there's winds and waves and storms, and you've got a bunch of fishermen that, you know, ought to be able to just get in a boat and cross a lake that are, that are fighting for their lives against this wind and this storm. So John had said that the former sign, this former sign actually in, in, of feeding the 5,000 was to test them. In verse 6 it says, but this he said to test him um, when, uh, to uh, Philip and, and uh, he says he, it was to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus knew himself what he would do. So, so when Jesus asked this question to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Well, Jesus knew what he was going to do, but he was testing Philip. That was a test. This next test is kind of the honors level portion of the exam. You find yourself on the boat and now fighting the winds and the sea. A quick overview can, then again of this, this passage here. Jesus departed the crowd and his disciples and by himself went up on a mountain to pray. That's verse 15. That evening the, G- the disciples went down, got into a boat and set out to return to Capernaum. And John notes that it was already dark 
and Jesus had not come with them. Verses 16 and 17. Those two things go together. It was already dark, and Jesus had not come with them. A storm arose because of a great wind blowing. Keep that in mind as well. Why is John telling us this? Verse 18. Rowing for three or four miles in this storm, they suddenly saw Jesus walking on the sea, drawing near, and they became terrified. Verse 19. Jesus said, it is I, fear not. Verse 20. And their response was to willingly receive him into the boat, after which John says that immediately the boat was at that land. Immediately the boat comes to the land, verse 21. Well, what John is doing here is, is there are themes of creation taking place. There are themes also of Moses and the Exodus all around. The same kinds of words, the same kinds of images John wants to bring to our minds. But Jesus is more than a greater Moses. He's also, he's not trying to show him that he's like Moses, but greater than Moses. He's the son of God. Like Moses, Jesus ascends upon a mountain to pray. He goes up to a mountain to pray and by himself. And while Moses caused the waters to divide, we find Jesus here walking upon the waters. God alone treads on the waves of the sea, we are told in Job 9.8. And it is God who stills the storms of the waters and only God, Psalm 89.9. God was in a burning bush, a fire that won't consume, and Jesus walked on the sea, waters that would not drown. So God was in a burning bush, a fire that would not consume, but Jesus is upon waters that would not drown. We're to see these things. Oh, just a little side note. I don't know if you've heard anything about climate change around here. But some of these verses are, are really helpful to think about in terms of who controls the weather? Who controls the storms of the seas? Really? Man does? Really? It's man that needs to change his way? That's the first thing that we should do? I wonder if there's just so, so much to learn here just in terms of that as well. It says that it was already dark. Um, remember in, back in the beginning, chapter 1, verse 5, it says, And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. This gospel begins with creation language. 1.1, one, one, in the beginning was the word, just like in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And here again, with darkness on the face of the deep in Genesis 1-2, we are told here that it was dark. Um, It was was when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and it was already dark, verse 17. Jesus is the one, we are told, who created the world, in John 1-3, and Jesus is the true light. Earlier, Nicodemus came to Jesus in the darkness. In chapter 3, you know the story of Jesus coming, of Nicodemus coming to Jesus and asking that question. That's the, that's the passage where it says, you must be born again. Well, in the very beginning of that passage, it says, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night in the dark. Nicodemus came in the darkness. And after their conversation, John tells us why men are condemned in the darkness and must come to the light. John um, commenting on this discourse that takes place with Nicodemus writes these words in John 3.19. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. And so whenever you see darkness and light, whenever it's actually dark or light in the narratives, all of these other verses are invited to come in and help remind you of what's taking place, what we're to see, and what we're to understand from it. Well, not only that, but we also have this idea of the wind, the, the, the wind hovering and blowing and, and creating this great stir. Remember that um, in, in both Hebrew and Greek, there's only one word for wind and spirit. It, it's, it's fascinating to, to read through um, the scriptures and just replace when you see wind with spirit and spirit with wind and, and see how they play off of each other. In, in Hebrew, the word is ruach. In, in uh, Greek, the word is pneuma. And, and so uh, in, in chapter 3, when, when Jesus says you must be, have, must be born of water and the spirit, he could have said, it, it, it could, reads, you must be born of water and the wind. Um, when he says, uh, you, you, you see the wind blow wherever it wishes, so, shall, so is the spirit. 
He could say, so, the, so is the wind. Or he could say, as the Spirit blows wherever it wishes, so is the Spirit. The, the word's the exact same word. And so context tells you which way to translate it. But you hear the word when you're hearing the word in Hebrew or Greek and you realize these are the same. This is the same. We're talking about the same thing. Word and, uh, I'm sorry, wind and spirit and breath even are all the same word. Okay, so now look again now at the passage for just a minute and see this. Um, in verse 16, now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea and they got into the boat and went over the sea toward Capernaum and it was already dark and Jesus had, had come to them. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. Something was going on. Well, just listen to these other passages for a moment. God walked in the wind of the day, Genesis 3, 8. When... Um, we're, we're oftentimes, uh, we translate that passage. This is when um, Adam and Eve sin um, and, and God comes to them. and says, it was in the cool of the day. Well, the word actually is there, the wind of the day. In, in the wind of the day, in the spirit of the day, um, it's, it, it's in this gathering of God's people by the spirit is actually what's going on in, in Genesis 3. Um, in Genesis 8, he pushed the floods away with his wind the time of Noah, he pushed the floods away with, the, with his wind. God parted the Red Sea with his wind, Exodus fourteen twenty one. Jesus told Nicodemus that the wind blows where it wishes as the spirit, and the wind spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters in Genesis 1, verse 2. God feeds his people angel food and brings the winds, Psalm 78, verses 25 and 26. So this wind is blowing over the sea. Now, uh, commentators will tell you about the Sea of Galilee, and they'll say that the Sea of Galilee lies about 600 feet below sea level. Cool air from the southeastern tablelands can rush in to displace the warm, moist air over the lake, churning up the water in a violent squall. So squalls upon uh, the Sea of Galilee were not unusual. So far, the material observation But the waters had to be gathered up into one at creation to separate the land from the waters back in Genesis 1, 9, and 10. Listen. Then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So in creation, we see that God gathers together the, the waters into one place, and he does so by the wind, by the wind of his spirit, okay? Well, is that the only time that God does that? Or when the wind is blowing, is, is that just simply a natural material thing that is going on? We have a tendency, we're very materialists, even us Christians, very materialists. We don't see that God is at work among us doing things, um, sustaining everything by the word of his power and at work at all times in all of creation, in all of nature, in all of the universe. Why does the sun stay where it stays? Because God said, stay there. What do we sing in Psalm 8? That's, he, she, he put the moon and the stars and he set them all in his place. And then he says to them, stay there. That's where I want you to be. Well, he does the same thing in all of the activities of nature around us. God is at work. So, the, so we have this, 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 uh, th- these waters in, in Genesis gathered up um, by the word of the, of the Lord. We also see the sea often stands for chaos and disorder of a symbol of a world in sin. Listen to Psalm 69. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. Or verse 14, 15, deliver me out of the mire and let me not sink. Let me not be delivered from those who hate me and out of the deep waters. Those who hate me and out of the deep waters. Let not the flood water overflow me, nor let the deep swallow me up. And let not the pit shut its mouth on me. The the, the sea often stands for this kind of chaotic swirling about of life that is going on or attacks from the enemy. Daniel chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, the four winds of heaven of the world stir up the great sea, and the four great beasts come up from the sea in his vision. These are the idolatrous kingdoms of the world against the Son of Man, who then, in that chapter, ascends over them, puts them all down, and then ascends over them to rule over them all. Daniel 7, 
13, I was watching the night visions and behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. So the picture of the son of man ascending to the ancient of days to then be seated and rule over the heaven and the earth comes after... The four winds which blow against the Son of Man, bringing forth the, the four great beasts, the four great kingdoms that are all put down by the Son of Man, who then ascends and sits at the right hand of God. God rules the raging of the sea. He's in charge of the raging of the sea, of the chaos, of the enemies. Psalm 89.9, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. And it is he who controls and stills it. You see this in Psalm 107. And so in John's narrative, once Jesus arrives in the boat with his disciples, once he's there, it says immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. He immediately is, is calming the storm. He immediately is bringing them to safety. These are the symbols that John is, is then pulling from as he tells this story. Creation language, language about Moses and, and the Exodus are throughout. And so then it should come as no surprise that Jesus then says to them, it is I. If you look at me again with me at uh, verse 20, or verse 19 we'll start. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat. And they were afraid. But he said to them, it is I. But our translation there does not really catch what he says. He says in the Greek, ego eimi. And this is the exact divine name that God gave to Moses. In Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, when Moses said, who shall I say that sent me? Uh, God says, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me. This is Yahweh. This is his covenant name. This becomes the covenant name that God is using um, as he declares who he is to the, to the world around him and to his people. Jesus will use this phrase over and over again, and John is the only one who is going to use it again throughout his gospel. It's only in John that you hear that Jesus is, where Jesus says, I am the door, or I am the good shepherd, or I am the bread of life. Okay, so it's only in, these, in, in the Gospel of John. I am's come up over and over again. Here, he's not, I am something. He just says, I am, do not be afraid. And so it kind of gets missed sometimes as one of the I am phrase, phrases, but it's actually one of the, uh, one of the very first ones that are in the, is, is in the text. Um, of course, in John chapter 8, at the end of John chapter 8, is where Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And all you grammar teachers want to mark him with a red pencil, right? And so did they. So did they. But what Jesus wasn't saying, um, he was not just saying, I exist. He is, he is declaring himself to be divine. He is declaring himself to be Yahweh. And so they're, they're on the waters. They know their Bibles. God is the one who controls the chaos of all the waters, Jesus comes upon them on the water, marching like Moses, parting seas, gets into the boat, they're afraid, and he says, I am. Do not be afraid. And immediately they're brought in to the haven. You see that? So this is, this is what's going on in this little passage here. This, this was the test. This was the test. Not what can I do, but who am I? Jesus then brings them uh, to their destination. He says, do not fear. And the other gospel accounts, uh, like I said, this is one of the signs that, are in the, uh, that is in the other um, gospel accounts. And, and in those accounts, um, they note, those authors note, that they rode against the storm all night. It was late. It was the fourth watch. And then they saw what they thought was a phantom, a ghost walking on the waters. Psalm 77 says, the waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you, they were afraid. The depths also trembled. So that's why it's worthwhile thinking about this phrase also, do not fear, that, um, that Jesus says. 
The, the, the phrase do not fear or be not afraid shows up in scripture over 120 times. Why, why does that show up 120 times? Why does it show, show, show up in the scripture so many times? Do not be afraid. Why do we need to hear do not be afraid? Because we're afraid. Because <laughs> we're afraid all the time. We're afraid after, after some great event and everything's just going well, it only takes one little thing to happen and all of a sudden we're afraid again. We are fearful people. Jesus teaches us that the only fear we are to have is the fear of God. Tying into um, to what Joe said in the call to worship even this morning, our, our fear and reverence is to be Um, is to be towards God and God alone and not towards man. And it is by developing a fear of God and only in developing a fear of God that we're going to not be afraid of man or the circumstances of life that men bring to us. In, in, uh, In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And so our, our fear diminishes towards any man when our fear is placed on the one who can deliver both body and soul from hell. Fear. But, but what does this fear look like? When Jesus, in the very next verses, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. One of you, a little, little girl, came up to her father this morning with a little toy that she had lost and then found. Yeah. Well, God hadn't lost it. You knew exactly where that little toy was. God knows where every coin you have is. They can't, it's not, it's not lost. And, and sparrows are not sold for a copper coin without God knowing. Every, everything you bought, everything you cooked for the feast today God knew about. And he says, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Do not fear how many hairs you have on your head, how, many, how much food you have in your pantry, how, much, um, how many days you have left in your life. Do not fear those things. Rather, fear God. Fear the one who already has all control over all this and know that he cares for you more than all of those things. And so the passage explains that the reason there to fear only him is because he knows the very numbers of the hairs on your head. Nothing touches you. Jesus, they're on the water and it, it looks horrible. It looks, it looks like everything's going to fall apart. And then Jesus appears. He was always there. He saw them. He saw where they, where they were and he comes to them. Nothing touches you except it passed through the hands of your loving Father and Jesus who calls you friend. <coughs> Not even physical death. No, this, is, this is the glorious doctrine of the exhaustive sovereignty of God. I mean, you, you just need to sit here for a moment and think about that. There's nothing that happened to you this week. Not, no thought, no word, nor deed that did not pass through, was not brought to you, was not sent to you by your Father in heaven. One of the reasons we are such an easily troubled people, full of anxiety and fear, is that we do not fear God. Now, you, know, you think, you think that, that the anxiety and the fear is because, well, Dave, you don't realize what just happened this week. You, you don't realize the circumstance that I'm in. But the scriptures teach that the circumstances has nothing to do with whether or not you need to be anxious or fear. Your understanding of who Jesus is has everything to do with whether or not we need to be anxious or fear. And circumstances have nothing to do with it. Circumstances are just tests. Tests to show us and lead us to see who Jesus is and what we are to do. So the God of our modern sensibilities is small. And I'm talking about in the Christian world and in my own head. The the God of our modern sensibilities is small and manageable and inattentive, full of sweet sentiment, 
but unable to control all the storms of life. And when we view God as distant in that way, we determine that we must be the captain of our souls, which leads to terrible and lonely fear. The fear of the creaturely things, the fear of the creaturely things, of man, of relationships with others, of cancer, of loss of job, of marital unhappiness in the future, the what-ifs and what-abouts that you cook up in your imagination, right? These things cripple you. They cripple us. And this is because to face those fears effectively without a sovereign God means you have to be God. It means you have to be omnipotent. It means you have to be omniscient. You have to know everything, and you have to have all power to take care of all of it. How's that going for you? Because we are not. We are not God. We're not supposed to be. But the answer is not to live a life with no fear. Rather, it is to live a life that sees God placing you in the storm. And the I am present with you in the storm. And through the storm. And taking you immediately to that haven of rest. And that haven of rest is not always, in fact, it's rarely, all life gets packaged up and everything's good and perfect and everything's, now ducks are all in a row, right? Anybody there yet? No. But there is a haven of rest. Psalm 23, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, but I, am, I have no fear because I am is with me, who says, do not be afraid. And so you see the storm in your life. That's easy. But do you see Jesus in the storm? Not only is he coming to you in the storm, He brought the storm. You are to turn to him, but you are to do so in fear. Let him be your fear and dread, Isaiah writes. That is is when we see Jesus and we beheld his glory and the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. To to see the glory of God is a fearful thing. It's It's not sweet, sweet harps playing and everything is just... To see the glory of God, uh, when, when the prophets in the Old Testament saw the glory of God, they fall down on their faces and they're afraid they're going to die. But at the same time, that glory, which is so fearful, is from a father who is full of grace and truth and says to you, do not be afraid as you come to him. The truth is that God is to be feared and that God is full of grace You do not get to choose who God is. You do not get to make him a little puppet for you, a little idol up on the shelf, a little genie in the bottle to rub and ask for things to be taken care of. You do not get to control God. Coming to an understanding of who Jesus Christ is reigning at the right hand of God the Father is a terrible thing. It's dreadful. It's full of fear. At the same time, coming to an understanding of who that Jesus is who comes to you and is with you and through, through, uh, takes you through those storms becomes one of the most comforting and, and, uh, comforting and hopeful and peaceful and graceful things that you will ever experience in your life in the midst of any storm that God brings. You do not get to choose who God is. You do not get to choose what he is like. But he is full of grace and truth. And when you willingly receive him into the boat, as as we're told the disciples did, when you willingly receive him into the boat as he is, he will bring you safely to the land, to your haven. That's where he takes us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Holy and Almighty God, teach us to fear you and to be afraid of nothing else because of a gospel-wrought fear that turns us to you. And in that fear, let us willingly receive you in the storms of our lives as the one who has brought us the storm, the one who controls all the aspects of the storm, and the one who will bring us to our safe haven through the storm. Grant us faith 
Grant us fear. Grant us great joy in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We've been exhorted to be both fearless in our worship of God, not fearing man, while also fearing God in remembrance, excuse me, in reverence and remembering the words of the prophet Isaiah. Let him be your fear, let him be your dread, as Pastor Hatcher just told us. God is not mocked, nor is he to be trifled with, but he is a God of grace. The table before us shows both his dread and his grace. Prior to going to the cross to pay for every vile sin of his people, Jesus begged his father to take the dreaded cup of wrath from him if there just might be another way. To this, God gave him a resounding no. No, he would not take away the cup of wrath. He would not take away this dread. And so what was Christ's response? Christ responded by going to the cross voluntarily. And he absorbed the full wrath and fury of his own father for your sin and for my sin. But that's only half the story. The table proclaims the death of Christ, but it also proclaims the grace that the same Jesus the bringer of storms, the same Jesus that he offers, the grace to sit down to a feast of bread and wine with the king because that king has risen from the dead. Because of the atonement of the cross, we no longer have to dread the wrath of God. Christ has fully paid for those sins and has made us righteous before the Holy Father. We can experience this grace because Jesus' body was broken for us like a loaf of bread. His blood was poured out like wine to declare the new and more excellent covenant God was making with his people. Jesus died for the sins of his people and he rose again so that those people might have eternal life. So if you belong to Jesus, if you have his name sealed on your forehead Through baptism, this table is for you. Come and welcome to Jesus. The charge is this. Walk without fear of man, but in the fear of the Lord. Don't fear those who can only kill the body. Fear God, who has the power to deliver both body and soul from hell. Fear God, for he is in charge of your life eternal, and he alone can truly offer salvation and can, and can bring you safely from the storm to a safe harbor. Now receive the benediction from Psalm 67. God, be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Then the earth shall yield her increase. God, our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us, and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go in peace and stay for the feast.